Welcome to Couch Time. I am your host, Susie, a licensed marriage and family therapist, joined by my co-host, Janet, licensed clinical social worker. Thank you for joining our show where we dive into topics like mental health and relationship wellness, along with sharing our experiences and lessons learned on our road to licensure and building a private practice. You can connect with us at roadtowellness.co and susiehologian.com, where you can also find show notes for this episode. Are you in a long distance relationship? Is it difficult to find people who just get it? We know for us, it was challenging to feel understood and supported. That's why we created a collection of worksheets and guides for how to navigate long distance. You'll find information like how to communicate with your partner, how to keep things spicy, and how to discuss your values and closing the distance. Head over to www.suzyhalajian.com shop to pick up your own copy and learn the skills to empower your relationship. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Couch Time Podcast. I'm Janet Byramian, and I am joined by an amazing guest. Her name is Genesis Goms. She's a licensed mental health counselor in South Florida, and I'm so excited to have her. She's going to be talking about her journey to becoming a therapist. She specializes in working with couples and supporting individuals in their relationship. So I'm going to turn it over to her. Genesis, maybe you can introduce yourself and share a little bit more about what brought you to the field? Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. And yes, I am a licensed mental health counselor. I specialize in couples and relationships. I'm Gottman trained. I always say this jokingly, but there's more truth to it than there's jokes. The main reason I think I made it to the field was being an only child. And when I mean an only child, I was really an only child. So I don't have siblings. I don't have cousins. My mom had me later in life. So even her friend's kids were like way older than me. So I was really an only child, was always around adults. And I was always like overhearing conversations that were probably not appropriate for a child and didn't have much to contribute because obviously I was a child. But in my mind, I would think like, why would someone do that? Like, why would they in their right mind think that was a good idea? Like I'm seven and I think that sounds terrible, right? So I think that's part the interest in like what motivates people to behave the way they behave. And I would say also some great listening skills at that point in time. And then later on in life, well, not that much later on in life, but in, in high school, in 10th grade, I saw a therapist for the first time. And it was such an amazing experience. I really didn't know what to expect from therapy. I'd never been to a therapist. I come from a Latinx family, like people that go to therapy are quote unquote crazy. It, it was definitely not something that I was used to. I didn't have any friends that had been to therapy. So it was very new, but it was my first experience in therapy and it was phenomenal. It helped me overcome a huge fear that I had. Terrible phobia to dogs, which sounds very silly. It was pretty, pretty bad. And it helped me overcome that, something that I thought was impossible. And I knew that I wanted to help other people have that feeling, that feeling of I can overcome something that seems impossible to me. I love that. I actually didn't, I mean, I know you're an only child, but I actually never thought about that for you in terms of like that being a part of your story to becoming a therapist. I totally relate. I'm an only child and was also around so many adults. And I think only children, we learn how to be a little bit more independent, but I think we also grow up a little bit faster. I would agree with that. Well, thank you for sharing your story. I wanted to also start off with some icebreaker questions just to kind of get to know you um, a little bit outside of the clinical world. So 
The first question is, in this last year, this last crazy year that we had, did you start any quarantine hobbies? So I would say it was like by stages, right? So there was a stage where I would go on these like sunset walks. Right after seeing my last client, I would like log off from simple practice and I would go maybe on an hour walk. And it was, you know, it was very nice. It was very, very relaxing. Then there was like a time change. So um, by the time I'm done seeing clients, it's not sunset anymore. It's very much dark outside. So we switched to the banana bread baking and we got very artistic with our banana bread. We did some mango banana bread. We did some like chocolate chip banana bread. We, we got creative with the banana breads. And then we did some painting for a while. And that was actually a lot of fun as well. Nice, nice. So I'm hearing a lot of new hobbies were created and a lot of self-care during that time. Yes, yes. Love that, love that. If you could travel anywhere in the world right now, if it were safe, where would you go? That's a hard one. There's so many places. But I would definitely say that Spain would probably be high up there. Spain, Spain. Okay, what are you passionate about with Spain? I love the food. Tapas are my favorite. So I, I would just love to be having tapas all day, every day. I would love to see like a flamenco show. I've seen some here in Miami, but I would love to see one like in Spain. I think it would be pretty amazing. And it's just so beautiful. I would love to be like by the beaches, but also then, you know, go to the mountains and get some of the city life. Just get a mixture of everything. Nice. On my bucket list too. I like to ask this question to a lot of therapists also, but if you didn't choose this particular career to be a clinician and you could choose maybe another career, what would you pick? I think there's two that are like runner up. Growing up right before I decided I wanted to be a therapist, I wanted to be a journalist for a really long time and had actually looked at some like journal, like bachelor programs in journalism for college. I don't know. I thought it was, I think it's always been really cool to listen to people's stories, right? It's a little different because now we have HIPAA and we can't tell people's stories as therapists. As a journalist, you get paid to tell people's stories. So it's a kind of the opposite, which I think is kind of funny and ironic. But I like the idea of like hearing people's stories and then being able to tell them and like do something with people's stories, right? Like, like having the ability to give people a voice, telling someone's story. It, it sounded very appealing to me and just getting to meet different people and like travel. That sounded very appealing to me. And I think if I wasn't a therapist, that would still be something that I probably would really enjoy. And I think the other one would be photography. Being a photographer, I think that's a way of telling people's stories as well, but through images. I can totally see you doing that. Both professions, actually. <laughs> and oh my God, can I just say, there are so many parallels with us. We're both only child. We're both cancers. We're both born in yes, July. Yes, we are. And July I babies. Actually, yeah, and I was actually, before I became a psychology major in grad school, I was a jur- broadcast journalism major in college. That's wild. I did not know that about you. <laughs> You're my last long twin. <laughs> I know, right? (laughs) But I chose it for different reasons. I chose it more so because my parents wanted me to do so versus the whole storytelling aspect. I'm kind of glad I didn't choose that field because similar to our field as clinicians, I think there's a lot of vicarious trauma going on in journalism. Yes. Yeah, but that's cool to know. And then if you could tell me last, 
icebreaker question. What was the best and worst part for you in terms of working from home? I think the best, it was, it made a lot of what made 2020 difficult a little bit easier. The knowing, first of all, that like I was safe, I was keeping my family safe, I was keeping my clients safe. I think that was like a huge weight lifted. So I think the privilege of being able to work from home just really took that anxiety away. I think it also allowed for some more of that self-care because if clients canceled, things got shifted. Like I was just home and I could do whatever I wanted instead of just, you know, being in the office, waiting for the next client, kind of killing time. And then I would say that some of the difficulties or some of the challenges, I think it was creating like transitions throughout my day so that it wouldn't feel like I was like in my office, in my room all day, every day, kind of creating those transitions at the beginning was definitely a challenge. And then I think when like things happen, like when your internet goes out or you have plumbing issues or like there's other things that happen in the household that wouldn't really be an issue if you were in the office because we just like leave that to someone else to take care of and you would just yeah. go and see your clients. So I think balancing some of those things have definitely, I've had to be more human with my clients than, than ever before. Totally relatable. I hate it when the Zoom screen just freezes and you're like, what? That too. What were they saying during this? And it's always when a client is having like this insightful moment or right. when you're in tears telling you something really vulnerable and really important. And that's when like things just, you know, Zoom starts to freeze and yeah. <laughs> totally. Well, thank you for some of those icebreakers. It's so fun to get to know different aspects of you in your life. I want us to transition into a little bit more about now your work as a clinician in Southeast Florida. And what we talked about in terms of your introduction was that you are a couples and relationship specialist. And I'm just curious, you know, what brought you to that particular specialization? Like what was your affinity towards that? So originally I wanted to work with children and I actually wanted to work with very young children, not even like teenagers. I wanted to do like elementary and, and below. And I did an internship while I was at FIU doing my undergrad. Absolutely loved it. I was super certain that's what I wanted to do. And then I got into grad school and started working with children in like my practicum and started seeing that parents are not always super excited to bring their children to therapy, right? Uh, when I was working at FIU, it was a study and people got money for bringing their kids to therapy and, and they got different perks for being part of the study. So everyone, for the most part, was very excited to bring their kid and to collaborate and go through the process. But when it comes to like real life, you know, normal therapy settings that are not studies, people are not always super thrilled to bring their child to therapy. And they're less thrilled to be part of the therapy. Unfortunately, a lot of the times, it's just kind of like, okay, fine, I'm going to leave you my kid, um, but you fix my kid and, you know, I'm going to go on and do my thing, right? And that became really frustrating. It made me realize that if I really wanted to have an impact, I had to work more with the adults in the kid's life, more so than with the kids themselves. Also, while I was at UCF where I did my master's, I had a job, it was another study, but I was working with the marriage and family department that they have. And they were doing a study on helping couples through relationship education and giving them tools for parenting, tools to improve their work status. So like teaching them things like how to write a resume and a cover letter, how to show up for an interview, that kind of thing. 
and, and seeing how all of that helped the relationship satisfaction. So if I'm able to get a better job and if we're able to be on the same page about how we're going to raise our children and have actual tools that we can use, aside from additional information as far as relationships, how is that going to overall impact the relationship satisfaction? And I think that was my introduction to working with adults and to working with couples specifically. And I just loved it. I thought it was fascinating, the difference. And these programs were usually about six weeks. And it's a pretty considerable small time. But to see how the assessment changed from week one to week six, and then through follow ups that we did for about a year, it was pretty amazing to see the difference. And it was pretty amazing to, to hear also the feedback of how that trickled to their parenting. So that made me realize that I work better with adults. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so it sounds like in working with some of the adults, then you had the exposure in working with couples and working with the couples definitely sparked even more desire for you in that particular area. Absolutely. I think we did it for both singles and we did it for couples. And it was, it was pretty amazing to see it in both. I think it just gave me a kind of an introduction to the couple dynamic. And that was kind of the, that seed was planted. When you do your work with couples, I'm curious to know, like, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face as a clinician in working with couples? So I think one of the biggest challenges, and it's not as big right now because of telehealth, but back in the face-to-face setting, I think it was a pretty big one, was just managing schedules and getting people to be able to commit consistently to sessions. Consistency is so important in therapy, whether you're going for couples, individuals, family, whatever it is that you're doing in therapy, consistency is essential. Managing their schedule, so the schedule of, you know, two people and myself, so a total of three people can definitely be challenging. I think sometimes it's also hard to get in the mood of therapy, right? And to really allow yourself to go deep into your feelings and to go to, to be in a vulnerable space and stay there long enough when you're frazzled, like running, rushing, commuting in traffic from work. Right. And like maybe picking up your kid and dropping off your kid with like a grandparent so that they have childcare while you're coming to sessions and then thinking like, Oh, I have to go home and I have to like prepare food and I have to help my kids with homework and I have to put them to bed and I have to do a load of laundry. Like, it's a lot. So I think that sometimes that being present for that hour could be challenging when you have all of that going on in your mind. So doing telehealth makes it a lot simple because they can be, do- they can be doing the load of laundry while our session is going on. The kid can be working on their homework on the room, you know, next to them. Some, they may be coming home from work, but it's less, it's less obstacles, less barriers than they have to deal with. And it really allows for that consistency, which allows for better outcomes and at a faster pace. So I would say that that was definitely one of them. I think the other challenge, which continues to be a challenge, and I think it's always a challenge, is being able to build rapport with both parties or with all parties, just being able to build rapport with them. It's not, it's not always that easy. I always say like, there's so there's one member of the, of the partnership that is super excited to come to therapy. And it's like, yes, I've been waiting for this moment. I've researched you. I know you're the one, you're the therapist for us. And then there's the other members of the party, which may not be as excited and are kind of here because you're guilt tripped or they're dragged and they're not fully sold on the idea of therapy. And that's so interesting to, you know, as a therapist, you have two people in front of you and you're holding, you know, two people's feelings, two people's 
desires, to people's lack of desires, to people's, you know, histories. I have so much admiration for couples therapists because it's, in a way, it's almost like kind of double the work, you know, during that hour meeting with that couple. So if you could impart any feedback or any advice or any recommendations to maybe newer clinicians out there or clinicians that are presently in grad school that are interested in maybe working with couples or even the experience you have with children, what sorts of thoughts or what sorts of recommendations would you impart to someone that's maybe interested or new to the field? I would definitely encourage them to get additional training and to like read about it, to go to workshops. I think couples, I don't know that there's a specific um, approach that is the best. I am trained in Gottman and I love Gottman. I have some training in emotionally focused therapy and I like it as well. Um, It's not so much about the approach, but I do think that you need to have an approach. You need to have something that helps you guide the session and that helps you stay on track. Because like you said, you have two people in front of you. You usually have two people that are in high distress in front of you. And it can be really easy to get lost in that distress and to get lost in the intense feelings and to lose control of the session. I think when when I go into sessions with my individuals, I don't do a lot of preparing. I don't think there's a lot that I need to prepare for unless there's something very specific about that case. It's just me and them. I build rapport with them. And just like things kind of come up as we go through the session. It's kind of flows more organically. With my couples, there's always some preparing. Like I always come in with a game plan because I don't know what kind of week they had. You know, I don't know if it was a wonderful week and they're like in their honeymoon stage all over again or if something crazy erupted like 30 minutes before our session and the feelings are running high. And so I need to make sure that I am staying grounded and that I am being useful throughout the session. That I am just, they're not just, I'm not being an expectator of them continuing to fight the same way that they fight at home. That's pointless. I need to make sure that I'm grounded and that I am serving a purpose. And so preparing myself, having an approach, having some form of a method helps me stay grounded even when emotions are running high. I love that. So I'm really hearing that a big part of the importance of couples work is to have, of course, training, but to also have structure or some sort of structure set for those sessions. Otherwise, like you said, you lose control. I love that feedback. That's so important to have. What would you say also, you know, we all have obstacles in our careers, whether it's, you know, during our licensure process or maybe pre-licensure process. I'm just curious if you kind of look back at your career, what has been some of the biggest obstacles that you faced and how did you work through it? Hmm, That's a really good question. I think, I think the biggest obstacle was probably burning out as a registered intern. I worked at, I worked with substance abuse and it just I loved it for a while like I really loved it for a while I think it taught me a lot I saw you know I saw so many different cases that I never worked with a client with schizophrenia before and I saw that there and I saw that a few times so it really opened my eyes to a lot of things which I think has been very helpful I think a lot of times people go into private practice thinking that you're not going to see severe severe mental illness in private practice and that's far from the truth Although maybe that it, private practice is not the ideal setting and you're not able to provide, you know, the level of care necessary, people are still going to call with these issues. 
they, they don't know what level of care is best for them. Like they don't know the kind of help that they need. So you're still going to be faced with this. And I think having that background and just being able to know like, okay, this is not, this is not a person that's appropriate for me, but they would be better served in this place has definitely been very helpful. However, it's also a very draining setting to work in an addictions facility. You know, I always joke with people when I'm talking to like registered interns or like people early on in their career, but it was it's very normal to have like my door, my office door slammed like five times a day. It was very normal to like have clients call me all sorts of names. Like people, they don't want to be there and they're going through de the detox process, which is definitely not fun. And so they don't want to be there. They don't feel well. They don't understand why they can't just like leave or why they can't just do certain things that they want to do. And you're kind of the authority figure, right? It's like you're there to hold their feelings and you're there to like give them coping skills and you're there to help them with their trauma, but you're also setting these boundaries with them and you're also giving them these rules that they need to follow. And so it's a kind of opposite. It's almost like a parent role right? It's kind of like these opposites that you're juggling at the same time. And people don't always love it. So it's, you don't get a lot of thank yous. And you don't get a lot of recognition, which I think we all like to a certain extent. So I found myself burning out. And I think I recognize that when so it's not atypical for patients or clients to pass away. I mean, addiction centers are kind of like this revolving door. Some people do well and, and succeed and, and other people don't and continue to come back. And so when I began, I remember the first time I learned that a client had passed away, it really hit me really hard. And it was, you know, it was like a situation I'd never been in. And it was something I had to process with my supervisor at that time. And it was, it was difficult. But when I realized that I had, that I was burning out, it was when I became kind of cold to learning about these clients passing away, whether they were my clients or other clients in the facility, they were still human beings that I came across, right? But I just kind of felt kind of cold and disconnected from those deaths. And that just made me realize like, okay, there's some something needs to change because this is not normal. This is not okay. And this is not you. Like I knew that was not me. I'm not that kind of the person that just disconnects that way. So that was a, a big red flag for me. I would definitely say that was probably the biggest challenge, figuring out what was coming next after that. Got it. And yeah, I mean, so many of us experience similar things just in terms of therapist burnout. I remember in grad school, even, you know, a lot of our professors and field instructors would warn us like, you know, in, in, this, in this field, burnout is real, be careful. And I remember it was so cavalier. I was like, oh, mm -hmm. I can handle it. I'm me. Yeah, I love it. What are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. And I just remember a couple months into my, one of my internships in grad school, I worked at a, actually a hospice agency while in grad school and similar, well, kind of similar to you. One of my clients also passed away because kind of their time. And I did not know how to deal with that or process that. I, I think I was just in a state of shock and disbelief, like many of us experience, you know, in the early stages of grieving and bereavement. So I remember burning out at that time as well, not knowing how to handle it and process it. And I enrolled in therapy for myself during grad school at that time to work through those 
feelings. So it just kind of reinforced exactly what you're saying that nobody's immune to burnout. Burnout is real. And at any stage of your career, I think sometimes I know like what I heard my professors talk about burnout. I was like, well, yes, because you've been in the field 25 years. Anyone with burnout are 25 years, right? But it can happen as soon as grad school. It can happen when you're working towards licensure. It can happen at any point in your career. Yeah. So if we talk about burnout, you know, and again, to discuss it to at least some of the early clinicians out there, what feedback or what recommendations would you have in order to maybe let's say even prevent burnout? Or if we are burnt out, you know, what would you recommend in terms of working through it? I think boundaries with yourself and with others are very important, but especially with yourself. I think when, you know, when you're in school, like you obviously want to stand out, you want to like, you know, impress your supervisor at your internship, because that maybe will secure you a job after you graduate. And obviously, we all want jobs. Um, you know, you, you want to get your hours. So you as a registered intern, you want to get your hours. So like, you definitely want to see as many clients as you can possibly see. It's also, I think, temp- well, tempting, and not even tempting, you know, for some people, maybe what you're making as a registered intern is not enough and you have to get a second job, right? Or even in grad school, you have to juggle a job, part-time job, full-time job, and also, you know, take your classes and also do your practicum and your internship. It's part of the process, but I think we need to set some boundaries with ourselves around that. We need to protect our free time and use our free time to really decompress and engage in self-care activities as cliche as that may sound is definitely really important. And those self-care activities might be meal prepping for the week. Those self-care activities might mean doing your own therapy. Those self-care activities might mean doing your laundry. It might mean going to the beach for a while or going to the spa. Like it's going to depend on what's going on in your life. Again, it can sound really, really cliche because it sounded very cliche to me as well. But that is definitely really important. And I think it's also knowing like when to stop adding things to your plate. Again, like in, when I, I mean, when I was in grad school, I'll talk from my own experience. I had to work part time and it was more of almost of a full time than a part time. And I went to school full time and, you know, I did my practicum and my internships full time as well. So it was definitely juggling a lot. But I think that that was like a, a season and that's just how it had to be for that season. I think the issue comes when we extend that. So after graduation and when I had like a simple nine to five job, sort of not that nine to five, but when I had a more, just, just a job to worry about. Right. I remember sometimes coming home and being like, what do I do with this extra time? Like I should, I should be doing something else. Like I should maybe consider going for a PhD or like I should find something else to occupy my time because I was so used to being busy all the time. And I was so used to like having a million deadlines and just being involved in a million things at once. And so that was a moment where I had to think like, no, Like, it's okay for me to come home and just relax. It's okay for me to just like come home and do something nice for myself and not have to feel like I have more obligations to attend to. So I think it's just, again, setting those boundaries with ourselves and setting boundaries with other people, setting boundaries with our supervisors, setting boundaries with our professors, setting boundaries with our bosses, which can be, I think, nerve wracking, especially at the beginning Again, you want to stand out and you want to be, you know, you, you want to be a team player. You want to secure that job after internship. But setting those boundaries are super important. I wholeheartedly agree, you know, and I, I know for, 
new clinicians or even clinicians that are in grad school working on their practicums and internships, it may feel scary to say, no, this is too much, or I can't meet this deadline right now. But, you know, working on those skills, especially in grad school, is actually going to set you up for success in the future, you know, in during your intern or associate years, and also, of course, throughout licensure years, because like you said, I agree with you, boundaries are so important, because essentially, that's how we take care of ourselves. And that's also how we teach others to take care of us. And I remember, actually, in my graduate program, I had one of my professors, I think, say to the whole class, not specifically to me, but to say, you have to also find a way to turn off, you know, that therapist or clinical brain. Sometimes if you have this, this on 24 seven, you're going to burn out doing that too. And I remember I appreciated that feedback so much. And it reminded me like, I don't have to have my clinical social worker mind on all the time. I don't need to analyze everything. (laughs) And I remember a a big hobby, still a hobby of mine was dancing. And Mm -hmm. I would do so many dance classes, dance rehearsals. And it was amazing because I got to turn off that part of my brain and just focus on like uh, movement body stuff and use a different part of my brain. And it was amazing. It was like such a way Mm -hmm. for me to like turn off grad school and like be Janet again. So I, I want to, I love that. Yeah. It's definitely a big switch. Yeah, for sure. Because I think part of, part of this too is like being a clinician, you know, I, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but being a clinician can't be our whole identity. We, we must have other parts of our identities as well. This is not everything in terms of who we are. I wonder, what do you think about that? I think that's really important and I think it can become our identity very easily, especially through like our student intern associate years, because again, so much of it is getting that degree and then it's getting those hours and then it's, you know, passing your board exams and getting that licensure. And it's like this constant race and that can really just become the focus. But I, I agree. I think it's really important. I find that that can be an easy way to burn out as well. And I think it also goes back to the boundaries with myself and the boundaries with other people. It's recognizing, yes, as much as it is important for me to make school a priority and to get my hours and to work to certain goals, I also still need to set some boundaries and remind myself that there's other aspects of me aside of being a clinician that I need to tend to those other sides of me. And there was something else that you said that I thought was really important, the being able to set those boundaries even in in grad school. Right. And it kind of like working on that muscle and on that confidence of setting those boundaries. I think it's really important because I know that a lot being in private practice and talking to other therapists in private practice, most therapists would tell you, like, I decided to go into private practice because, you know, I was overworked at my agency. You know, it was a nine to five that was not really a nine to five. And, you know, I was just so burned out with the amount of work and the paperwork and this and that. And, you know, I just wanted to have more freedom. So I decided to come into private practice. I'm going to get paid better and I wanted to have more freedom. However, I think a lot of times we repeat the same patterns in private practice if we're not clear about boundaries, right? We take clients out of, out of, 
amount of money that is not reasonable for us to sustain our practice. So then that means we have to be seeing 40 clients a week to be able to sustain our practice and, you know, our lifestyle, which then takes us back to feeling overworked and underpaid like we did at an agency. It also adds a lot of more paperwork and it adds a lot of more things to our day to day. You know, seeing client working with clients is not just the 15 minutes that you see them. There's a lot that can happen behind the scenes. It may depend on the population that you're working with, but there's a lot that happens behind the scenes. If you're working with minors, you have to stay in touch with parents. You have to stay in touch with the school counselor. You might need to be, you might need to stay in touch with psychiatrists and with other people in a client's life. So there's a lot that happens behind the scenes that is beyond those 15 minutes, right? So if I'm seeing 40 clients a week, there is no way that I can keep up with everything clinically, right? My business, and then also be Genesis and do other things, right? And engage in self-care and engage in hobbies and be a friend and be a daughter and, you know, be a partner and be other things. So I think it's really important that we keep that in mind because I think that's a lot of a mindset and it's not so much of changing settings, more so the mindset that we bring with ourselves to the different settings. Totally love that. And I wonder, you know, similar to what we've been talking about, is there a part of your journey that you would change if you could do it all over again? That's also a really good question. I don't know that I would change anything. I think I enjoyed all the jobs that I had prior to go coming into private practice. I think that they all kind of helped me develop as a clinician. And I think also made me just a more humane and, and and better person overall. I don't know. I think I would have kept everything the same way. I think that there was just valuable lessons in everything. I remember having a professor saying that you get the clients that you need. And I think you also get placed in the settings in which you need to be placed to get specific experience and, and help you develop, learn what you like and, and what aligns with you and also learn what you don't like and just what doesn't resonate with you. Totally. I'm a firm believer in that too. We work with the clients that we're meant to work with and where we have the specific jobs that we're meant to have. I totally wholeheartedly agree with that. And I love what you're saying too. I mean, even though there were, I imagine challenging aspects of your journey, it was quite a learning experience, I imagine. And it kind of made you who you are both professionally and personally. I agree. I, yeah, I think, you know, I think every therapist is different and, and that's why some people will click with some therapists and, and not with others. And that's totally fine. And I think what makes us different, what gives us that little, you know, that, that little flavor, right. It's just the experiences that we've had and the clients that we've worked with aside from the training, the training is definitely an, an important piece, but aside from the training is the clients that we've worked with in the settings that we've worked in, the things we've had to learn, the skills we've had to use are really going to change the way that we work, even if we're in private practice and we're not even working necessarily in those same settings or with those same clients, that all kind of stays with us. Yeah. And it, it, it creates our own little flavor, right? That impacts the way that we show up in, in private practice or in whatever current setting we're in. It's been such an amazing conversation to learn even more about you and learn this side of you. I also am excited to share. So Genesis, not only are you a couples specialist, but I know that you also work with clinicians that are maybe new to the field or want to grow their practices. Can you share a little bit more about that and where people can find you if they want to work with you in that setting? 
Absolutely. So I am running workshops and they'll be coming, you know, a couple of times a year where I basically teach the basics of starting a private practice. And this is especially geared for minority clinicians who maybe never had a professor or never had a supervisor who was in private practice and who was thriving in private practice and who was able to kind of serve as a role model. I remember that that was kind of something I didn't have and I didn't know anything about like the business side of private practice. I knew I wanted to be in private practice, but I didn't really know what that would look like. And so I kind of had to learn some things along the way and I'm still learning things along the way. And so in these workshops, I share some of the basics of setting up your private practice when it comes to thinking about your ideal client, your brand, the message you want to send with your brand, the business model that you want to create so that your practice is sustainable financially, and that it's also not sustainable financially as a business, but also sustainable for you and your lifestyle. So that's giving you some profit. We talk about, you know, the use of social media. I think social media has been very helpful in creating my brand and in getting a constant um, stream of new referrals. So I talk about that. And I think the most exciting part of it is just connecting with new clinicians who are interested and excited about private practice, but just don't know how to make it happen. I love that. How can people find you if they wanted to sign up for your workshops? So you can definitely follow me on Instagram at the Miami therapist. And you can also check out my website. I update all of this on my website, healingconnections-therapy.com. Under the tab Academy, you'll be able to find upcoming workshops. Very cool. And I recommend, you know, if you're a clinician and whether you do Genesis's workshop or not, Genesis, you do a regular newsletter. I sign up for your newsletter and I get your (laughs) periodic newsletters. And I recommend everyone do that too, because Not only is it just information about the workshops, but I know you create like awesome handouts oftentimes and just little resources that even though I'm a clinician, I obviously find it very helpful anyway. I don't know everything. So I recommend going to that too. And I also recommend following Genesis on her Instagram because, you know, you post daily and you post just amazing mental health advice, resources, information in your stories. You know, you share also, you know, different helpful feedback, super awesome quotes. And so it's just something that, you know, like if you want that daily feed, I highly recommend it. We appreciate that you were able to join us today. And um, I hope everyone who has been listening have found our conversation incredibly helpful. We want to know what else you guys are interested in and what else you guys want to know. So feel free to check out on Instagram at therapy with Janet B. We thank you again for being a part of it today and see you next time. Thank you for joining us today on Couch Time. You can find show notes for this episode linked in the description along with all our references and resources mentioned today. If you enjoyed this episode, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next one. We will chat again soon. Bye.